Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. I am your host, Moyes Jiwa. My guest on the podcast today is an extraordinarily skilled clinician who works in a very technical field of medicine. Through his training, he's come to realize that the most success he's going to have with patients is in working as a partner in their care. He introduces his patients as someone with a specific hobby or interest to emphasize to his team that they are more than their pathology, that they are a real person with real interests and desires. My guest on the podcast today is cardiology fellow, Dr. Amit Goyal. You're very welcome to the show, Amit. I noticed that you are a third-year cardiology fellow, and I was interested to know what was your journey into medicine, and then why cardiology? Well, first of all, Moyes, uh, I just want to say how honored I feel to be uh, joining your uh, your show. Uh, I really enjoyed listening to the episodes and uh, looking over the list of prior guests and their caliber. I feel both a little out of place uh, and also very grateful to be here. So thank you. You know, my journey into medicine was, like for many people, a bit circuitous. And I was born to my both parents who are doctors. They trained and practiced and lived in India for a majority of their life and career. And in their mid-40s, they decided to uproot their career, their family, us, and move to America. In doing so, they had to go back and, you know, go into the books and re- study for the USMLE exams and go into residency at a time that was you know, pre-duty hour restrictions from GME. So they you know, put a lot of effort into it. And I always admired how much importance they gave to education. And that definitely imprinted on me. But you know, there was a period of time where I think from a youthful rebellion, I said, well, you guys are doctors. I will never be a doctor. And uh, that changed over a period of one day in particular when my dad asked me, I mean, how would you like to watch a brain surgery? And I thought that was the coolest thing. And I said, yes, both because I was curious and also because I thought, yeah, I can show off to my friends. I was in seventh grade at the time. And so I found myself, you know, for the first time in the operating room, feeling a little shy, wearing scrubs and the, the surgical cap and you know, these things that, you know, I wasn't used to. But there I was at the head of the bed. And I, I don't remember what the procedure was. I, I'd like to say it was uh, tumor excision, but something magical happened. Dr. Taylor, the neurosurgeon, she pointed at something and she said, Amit, look at that. If I move my X uh, tool, I, I don't know what she was holding, but she said, if I move just a hair to the left, this patient will go blind. And little did I know she was pointing at the optic chiasm. And, and all of a sudden, this association between structure and function, you know, there was a link between the two. And it, it just really, it blossomed this curiosity and interest in medical sciences and anatomy and function and the care of the patient. And, you know, that, how that blossomed was a story over the next few years. And by virtue of connecting with, with my parents, colleagues, and friends, I started observing more and more. I followed a cardiothoracic surgeon. I went to the pathology lab. I volunteered in the hospital, you know, beginning in the eighth grade. And, you know, but my, my original spark, that curiosity, the catalyst for this interest came from neurosurgery. And so I became very interested in the neurosciences. I, I remember in um, the ninth grade, there was a, a, an assignment to do a book report on a novel. And instead of doing a book report on a novel, I did a book report on 
um, it was a textbook of uh, neuroanatomy. And I got, I think I got an F because it was supposed to be a novel, a fictional book. And I did it on what I did, you know, but I, I, I remember how much I enjoyed it. And so went through medical school, most of medical school, knowing that I would become a neurosurgeon. I founded the Neurosurgery Interest Group, and I actually took a whole year between the third and fourth years. And in America, we do, after undergraduate college studies, we do four years of medical school. I took a whole year to study the science and biology of brain tumors. Specifically, in my area, was to look at the differences in uh, genetic expression of oligodendrogliomas and astrocytomas. And, and that was my prelude to applying for a neuro, neurosurgical residency. But wait, I'm a cardiology fellow, so how did that happen? You know, I realized when I was actually actively engaged in patient care, what I loved was the care of the patient, the overall patient. I was, you know, that spark came from the optic chiasm, but the same amount of spark and interest came from liver disease and heart disease and kidney disease. And so I said, look, I, I know that I, I wanted to take care of complex patients, uh, you know, do procedures, take care of critically Ill, uh, critical illness, but I want to first learn medicine. I want to learn how to take care of the whole patient. And I thought, okay, so the way to do that is to go into internal medicine, and then I would figure the rest out. I wanted to become a doctor first, you know, in the, in the, in the greatest sense of the word, in the most inclusive sense of the word. And so I went into uh, internal medicine residency at Johns Hopkins. And, you know, there was my very first rotation was in the cardiac critical care unit. And it was the same thing. There was a correlation between structure and function. There were structural abnormalities like aortic stenosis, which caused hemodynamic physiologic changes. And you could see in real time how adjusting vasoactive infusions led to a real-time hemodynamic impact. And so it was the same level of spark and interest and curiosity I had looking at the optic chiasm that started to manifest when I was taking care of patients in the CCU. And moreover, these were critically ill patients who had incredibly fascinating pathologies and oftentimes the kinds of pathologies that we could do something about. You know, you could, by offering some sort of procedure, oftentimes alter the trajectory of their illness, make them feel better, if not oftentimes live longer. And as I'll say that over the years, one of the greatest joy, I don't know if joys is the right word, but one of the greatest sources of satisfaction that I've gotten from taking care of a cardiovascular patient was the patient in whom we didn't have much to offer, who was very seriously ill. Those conversations we have at the bedside with a patient, their family, really dive into their core values and their goals. And sometimes if we can't help them live longer, we can at least be a steward for them and guide them through their end of life. And I felt like as a cardiologist, you get the whole spectrum. You get the whole spectrum from preventive cardiology in a healthy 20-year-old with no problems to the end of life, uh, having the most meaningful conversations that two people or multiple people can have with each other. That's a lovely story. And I wanted to comment really that the technical side of medicine is what got you interested in the business of doctoring, no doubt. You're describing what many, many medical students experience when they see the body and the function and put the two together and realize that technically there's a lot we can do. But of course, medicine is so much more than that. It's very much an art. And I want to explore that a little bit with you in the sense that so much of what 
matters to patients isn't the technical side. So much of it is about them making their decisions, them choosing their outcomes, their making their choices. Often choices that you as a cardiologist may not agree with. Patient who wants to live a particular lifestyle, and of course, that you know epidemiologically is going to lead to problems for them. How did you square that as you progressed through your career? Moise, I think what you're talking about is the issue of autonomy. We're taking care of people, individuals who have their own perceptions and perspectives and values. And we have to reconcile that with what sometimes we think is best for them, which may be guideline-driven, but may not necessarily be personalized for that individual's values. And I think that cardiology among the many fields, at least my relationship with the field, is is really the recognition of how important that is within the practice of cardiology. And you know, my interest is structural intervention, valvular heart disease. And if you take valvular heart disease, and again, let's go back to aortic stenosis, the care of the patient with aortic stenosis both begins and ends with how they feel, what they value doing. So when I see a patient with moderate or severe aortic stenosis being evaluated for TAVR transcatheter aortic valve replacement with Amar Krishnaswamy, who is an interventional cardiologist, chief of intervention here at the Cleveland Clinic, most of that first clinic visit is spent not thinking about the, the anatomy and physiology, the hemodynamics of the person's valves. It's, can they do the things that are important to them? I remember clearly having a conversation with a patient, and actually I'll share two stories, both in Dr. Krishnaswamy's clinic. One patient, we spent half the clinic visit really trying to isolate and identify what was it in terms of activities that gave them joy, right? When we do a valvular procedure, we can never make somebody who's feeling well better, right? I mean, we can only make them worse, but we can make somebody who's not feeling well oftentimes better if the lesion really is that valve. And so I spent half my clinic visit with a patient I remember very well talking about their joy of playing golf, how after retirement, golf was the one activity that helped them feel connected with their community, their friends, a sense of values. Almost, you know, they felt as connected to the sport as they did their, their job. And it was really getting into how many holes of golf they played now compared to before, carrying their clubs and getting into the nuances of their love for their sport to identify that, yes, even though this patient, this person told me that, no, they don't have symptoms. Because remember, it is aortic stenosis, like many things, develops insidiously. And so people start to just adjust their activities to match their exertional capacity. So they may not feel, they may not perceive that they're limited. But talking about their love for golf is what helps us identify like, no, over the past two years, there has been a change. And that change is something that we can isolate as being caused by the aortic stenosis and offering an intervention may help them. So that's one example. And the second example was a patient who was referred by their primary care doctor for consideration for mitral clip. It was a patient with severe mitral regurgitation in the context of what was diagnosed originally as heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, but really the patient had advanced AL cardiac amyloidosis. And unfortunately, in this context, the prognosis is much more driven by the systemic effects of AL amyloidosis as well as the, the impact it has on the, the infiltration within the heart, more so than the mitral regurgitation. So realizing that, we spent all of our clinic visit talking to them about their goals of care, what they valued in terms of trying to do procedures as opposed to what gave them joy outside of uh, being in the clinic. And the whole trajectory of that 
patient's care changed because of the time that I saw Dr. Krishnaswamy spending with that patient to delve into their value systems. And so within this highly advanced structural heart clinic visit at a coronary care center, one patient's visit is talking about golf and another patient's visit is talking about their goals of care. And so, again, I think that whatever kind of doctor you are, the story begins with the patient and ends with the patient. And I think that's as true for cardiology as it is for every other field. Yes, I agree. And I, I really enjoyed those stories. And as you were talking, I was reflecting on the 30 years of my career to date and reflecting on the fact that when I started in medicine, when I started as a early in my career, I spent most of my time dealing with atheromatous vascular disease. And I trained in Southwest Scotland. And literally on a night on call, I would go from one cardiac arrest to another for patients who had had myocardial infarctions. I don't believe that is the case now. I think that there's a lot been done to improve that situation. And that really is a credit to interventional cardiology. It's a credit to the technical side of medicine. Fast forwarding to now, the issues are quite different. The issues now are really about what the patient can do for themselves in order to improve their outcomes. And we know that the biggest issue that we face in public health at the moment is the problem with obesity. 60 to 80% of people are either overweight or obese. And in order to change that outcome is a much, much bigger challenge than prescribing an ACE inhibitor or putting in a stent. What's your take on that? You know, Moise, you've, is- you've isolated probably the number one issue in cardiovascular care, whether you talk about atherosclerotic disease, atrial fibrillation, heart failure, really any of the domains within cardiology, so much of it is preventable. And the other point is that by practicing responsive medicine, where we respond to the illness, practicing secondary and tertiary prevention, the damage has already been done. The the patients are already on a trajectory of illness, of having recurrent hospital visits, clinical visits. And we are very well equipped to tackle the STEMI, to diuresis, the acute heart failure exacerbation, to cardiovascular atrial fibrillation. But the sheer volume and the cost of taking care of patients when they've already developed these, um, these illnesses is staggering, right? I mean, this is a huge problem. It's devastating. The greatest impact that we can have is identifying the opportunities to prevent the disease from manifesting. And we think about primary prevention as the crown jewel. We mitigate risk factors to prevent a heart attack. But really, I think the most important aspect that we can focus on is primordial prevention, right? Which is not just mitigating risk factors, but working hard through education, lifestyle, policy, this multifactorial approach to prevent the onset of risk factors themselves. And we know that exposures in utero are relevant for risk factor generation and eventual disease progression to really have an impact on population health and cardiovascular illness. It's going to take a multi-pronged approach from every facet, right? This is teamwork at the greatest scale from individual physicians counseling their patients about lifestyle, diet, and exposures that are important risk factors. The most important policy that improve cardiovascular care are those centered around reducing uh, cigarette tobacco use in America. So I think there's a lot to be done. 
access to healthcare is important. And I think one of the revolutions that we're at the brink of that's really going to help us battle both cardiovascular disease that's manifested, but also uh, assist people with primary prevention, primordial prevention, is that of digital health. These wearable technologies are here. And I was uh, I was at Best Buy the other day uh, looking for baby monitors. My, my wife and I had just had twins uh, about three weeks ago. But I, I got stuck between the section between uh, microphones and cell phones, and there was a whole area of wearable devices, right, uh, including everything from a smart weight scales to the Apple iWatch to even a little monitor that uh, straps onto a baby's feet to tell you about how their sleeping patterns are and uh, their oxygen status. So wearable devices and it's like health technology is here. It's a multi-billion dollar business. I see that and I completely agree with your perception that it is a multi-billion dollar industry. There's no question about it. But I'm slightly concerned about that. And I want to share that concern with you and reflect with you on that. And my concern is that increasingly, it seems to me that we are blaming the person with the problem. We're saying, you've got this problem with obesity, you've got this problem with cigarette smoking or whatever other sedentary lifestyle, because you're not investing in yourself. And all you need is to be counseled about your lifestyle and diet in order to prevent this condition that is easily preventable. The problem I have with that is As a family doctor, I will see my patients generally at most five times a year for short visits usually. Now, that compared to the insidious advertising, the impact of social media on people in terms of the choices they make, the choices to eat junk food at every football match, the choice to watch television, the choice to the the triggers there are to adopt lifestyles that also fund another multi-billion dollar business, which is the food industry, the tobacco industry, and so on. Mm. Where do you think we fit in this, other than the small bit that we can do to treat somebody when they've got chest pain or put somebody on atrial fibrillation or anticoagulants or whatever it happens to be? What do you think is our role realistically in prevention? Yeah, so that's, you know, that gets at the crux of the problem. A lot of prevention does factor around behavioral considerations, but it's so much deeper than that, right? I mean, it's, as you said, it's not as simple as telling someone what the right thing is to do and expecting that they'll do it. There are barriers. There are barriers that include access to the gym or open parks, access to a healthy diet, even access to a family practitioner like yourself or uh, my cardiovascular colleagues. And so I think alongside education, My hope is that we'll learn to leverage technology to improve access and empower our patients, empower them with knowledge and information, and ideally have payment structures in place that improve access to these technologies as well as providers, but but in a way that, that provides feedback. Because just getting data is not enough. Getting data about a person's activity level their calorie intake. And again, if you, if you progress through the different levels of prevention, the cardia device to look at if they're having episodes of AFib and somebody who's already had paroxysmal AFib, that data is meaningless unless we have structures in place to evaluate the data and then feed it back to the patient and pair that feedback with education on how to either change behavior or 
change or alter medications. And so one example is an otherwise healthy man in his 40s who was developing episodes of feeling odd. These vague symptoms of anxiety, maybe palpitations, had all of the traditional evaluations done. EKG, Holter monitor, echocardiogram, a nuclear stress test, and everything was negative. In short, his patient was conservative in their approach and didn't want a loop recorder. And their doctor, Dr. Tarachi, recommended, here's a cardio device that hooks onto your mobile, uh, to your cell phone. And when you have these episodes, interrogate yourself. You put your two thumbs on it and it gives you a rhythm strip with an algorithm that can give you at least some level of interpretation. And it was with that device that this patient was diagnosed with actually having paroxysms of atrial fibrillation that the traditional modalities were ineffective for diagnosing this patient. You know, and so this patient who was otherwise relegated to just having episodes of anxiety disorder was diagnosed with atrial fibrillation, had an ablation, and uh, was better for it. So, you know, I think there are opportunities to meaningfully use technologies, but uh, there are also dangers of, um, you know, making sure that it's validated, making sure that it's integrated in how we assess the information, providing feedback, as well as education. And that's that's a lovely story. That's the kind of story, though, that terrifies family doctors in particular because they'd be busy diagnosing somebody as having an anxiety disorder only later to discover that they had paroxysmal atrial fibrillation. We, we chase that diagnosis and of course it means that patients are often over-investigated for what may otherwise have been a, an anxiety disorder which, which needs a different modality of treatment. But that aside, I wanted to really go back to that patient you talked about whose joy came from playing golf. I wonder whether that's the answer here in that we talk to patients about what they want their health for. I think one of my previous podcast guests actually said this. He asked the question, you want to be healthy. Why do you want to be healthy? And often they then make the commitment. The motivation is quite different. I want to play golf. You say, I can help you to play golf, but in order to achieve that, we need to make sure that your cardiovascular system is healthy and here's how we can do it. And that's a different conversation because then the patient is invested in that particular outcome. I love this question because this really gets to empowering the patient, right? You're making the outcome relevant for the patient in front of you. The the A1C target or the blood pressure target may be less relevant than being able to play golf. And I I think um, it requires a tremendous amount of skill to properly engage in motivational interviewing. But I remember that, um, you know, someone I respected uh, quite a bit from medical school who uh, gave us some modules in, in this really art form said, if nothing else, when you're talking of behavioral change, ask your patients three questions. Okay. The first question is from a scale of one to 10, how much do you want to X? Now, how much do you want to quit alcohol as an X? The second question, on a scale from 1 to 10, how much do you feel like you are prepared to quit alcohol? And then the third question is, from a scale of 1 to 10, how much do you feel like you have the tools to, again, X, whatever that may be? And the, the example she gave of how to really operationalize that is someone may say, okay, uh, how much do I want to change a behavior? The number is six. And on first glance, you say, oh, six is very moderate. It's not 10. But you can empower the patient by, by asking them, oh, I'm glad you said six. Tell me, why did you say six and not four? What made that change for you? 
what is it that makes you want to stop this behavior or engage in this behavior? And so, you know, the three different questions are similar, but they get at different things. It's the, the intrinsic motivation, the preparedness, and the tools. You know, you can, you have tools to offer a patient and it can really help identify the barriers and challenges they've had in the past, the values that motivate them and what you can do to empower them. And so I, you know, I've, I've used this a number of times because again, taking care of patients with cardiovascular disease, the greatest impact I can have is by changing behavior. Yes, I, I totally agree. And I love those questions that you put to patients. I think the bottom line is whatever questions you put to patients, they have to actually engage the patient in their care. And that, I suppose, is the point that I was trying to get to, which is that we have the technological capacity to do all kinds of things for people. The question is, do they want those things? And given that there are so many other influences in, in people's lives, we need to be very respectful of the fact that sometimes the patient isn't ready to make that change. And however frustrating that is for us, that is the reality. I'm reminded of a book called Scarcity out of Princeton University. I can't remember the names of the authors, but essentially they say that there's a thing called tunneling, where when you're faced with a problem, you are focused on that problem almost to the exclusion of all other things that are happening because that problem is so critical to you at that point, whether or not that's the reality, that's your perception. And when you're faced with somebody who is tunneling, it's extremely hard for you to say, mate, you need to lose weight, you need to stop smoking, you need to stop sitting on the couch uh, on, the, on, on, a, on the sofa uh, in the evening watching television. That's just not going to happen. Right. And, and, you know, frankly, that approach is just disrespectful and will create even a larger chasm between, you know, the provider and the patient. And, you know, uh, but on the flip side of that, you know, I think as a, as a younger trainee, when a patient told me that, look, honey, I know you want me to stop smoking, but this is what I enjoy doing. This is all I enjoy doing. I am not going to listen to that. And originally I used to take that as a affront to me to, it was a challenge to me as a, as a provider, it was a challenge to the care that I wanted to provide. And I took it, you know, I think early on, I, I took it personally. And then I realized later on that, no, it's their individual decision, right? This is their life. And all you can do is give a recommendation, empower them with information, and respect their wishes, because that's how you make an alliance. And that's at the end of the day, our care of the patient is not touch and go. It's not in one moment in time. We make relationships with patients that span, you know, if not days, weeks, months, and for many people, years. And so working hard to build that therapeutic alliance is important. And then, you know, also realizing that the if you have that alliance, even if somebody's pre-contemplative and not ready to change behavior, they will still respect your opinions, your views, and the education counseling you provide. And so I think it's still okay to counsel and provide education while respecting wherever they are in that behavioral change paradigm, contemplative, pre-contemplative, uh, what have you. Yes, I agree. And I'm thinking back to the young man who was watching the neurosurgery and thinking comes to a point where you are so invested in that technical outcome, you are so impressed by what doctors can do in that setting that you forget that the brain actually belongs to a human being that makes choices you may not agree with, but choices nevertheless that we need to respect. You know, this is such an important point. And as a resident trainee, often juggling a patient census of 
10 plus while I was covering other uh, colleagues, it became easier to refer to patients as, oh, the, the gentleman with AFib or the lady with mitral stenosis or, you know, what have you. Like, you really think of them and identify them as their disease. And I realized that, you know, that really creates an environment where you completely ignore who the person is that has it. Like you said, it's not just the brain. There's somebody that the brain belongs to. And so reflecting on the divide that that creates, you know, the, this, this chasm between the provider and the patient and, and the loss of human connection. When I became a chief resident uh, with my own patient census and an academic service, I asked each of my interns, however busy their overnight call was, however many patients they admitted, that the first thing on their one-liner after the age and gender would be to include a hobby that the patient values something or, or some personal facet about them. So it wasn't the guy with mitral stenosis. It was you know, Mr. Smith, who enjoys fishing, came in with shortness of breath. And I think that really doing that, I hope, helped my interns connect, make stronger bonds and understand the values of uh, my patients. I think of them at least momentarily as, as people as they are. But I think it also forced me and reminded me constantly on a busy day that, yeah, we're, we're taking care of Mr. Smith, not the mitral stenosis. It reminds me of Mosler's, uh, Willie Mosler's famous quote is, and I, I don't remember the exact words, but it's the, the, the good physician treats the disease, but the great physician treats the patient who has the disease. And I really think those are very important words to, to always remember. That's a fabulous tip, Amit, and I'm sure that many of our listeners would love to maybe adopt that. I, I love the idea that when you're introducing somebody on a ward round that you say, this is Mr. Smith and he enjoys fishing. I love that idea because it be he becomes more than just Mr. Smith with the atrial fibrillation. He becomes Mr. Smith who who is a real person with real ideas and desires. And particularly when they come into an area of medicine that is so technical, where you are so focused on getting the technical side right, because that could save the man's life. But on the other hand, you need to say, it's not just about saving the man's life, it's about saving a human being so that they can go out and do what they want to do, which is what the goal of medicine is all along. Right. And I'll say that not only is that so critical for seeing our patients as people, but it's also so important for self-preservation and avoiding burnout. We have to remember why we decided to do this. And there are days where it can be hard to remember because, again, days are busy and there are demands that pull you in different directions. But but if you continue to remember that the at the heart of everything we do is the care of a person, then you know I think remembering that helps keeps your perspective. Definitely helps keep my perspective and and keeps the the candle burning in the late nights of uh, of being on call. Amit Goyal, you are a third year cardiology fellow, and in my view, and I'm sure in the view of many of our listeners, you're on your way to a fabulous career. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. It's been an absolute joy and pleasure. And Professor Jiwa, thank you so much for having me. The Journal of Health Design. Better health by design. Visit us at thejournalofhealthdesign.com.